I'd like to invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 11 this morning. John Bott said, of all mornings, I don't want to ramble. He doesn't know how long this sermon is. <laughs> I was thinking this morning, oh no, what if I'm not at this point by quarter till? And I haven't even started uh, this morning. But I know that some of you are going to get on to me if I don't just go ahead and preach this sermon. So I'm going to go ahead and see what happens here and uh, maybe cut the end off a little bit. But here's the thing. Uh, we're not just going point by point here. We're in, a, in a, this chapter 11 in Revelation where we're taking a couple of Sundays to, to sort of park and get our minds around the big picture of what God is doing in salvation history, which connects at so many different places in this text. The next time I open this text in Revelation 11, I plan to go in detail and and look at the two witnesses and and what their ministry tells us about how we should be ministering. There's some fascinating things in here. But right now, uh, I'm going to pick up sort of where I left off last week and uh, really look at a big picture, look at a story. We're going to sort of go on a journey here through the Scripture and then circle back around to this text. So we're talking about the Lord's merciful witnesses in Revelation 11, this enigmatic chapter. And I call it enigmatic, puzzling, because there are some difficult things to interpret in it. Several commentators say it's the the most difficult chapter in Revelation to, to figure out. But last week, what we established is that at the least, what this chapter is telling us is that God is giving special attention to his chosen people, the Jews, during this time in the tribulation period. And as we lay this chapter alongside Daniel 9 and Daniel 12 and 2 Thessalonians 2, we discern that this this powerful political figure will rise up and make an agreement with the Jews who will rebuild their temple. I haven't called this political figure the Antichrist yet. I don't want to get ahead of what the text is going to tell us, but that's eventually what we're going to land on. And after three and a half years, this ruler, this Antichrist, will break his agreement and the outside of the, of the temple will be overrun by the Gentiles for another three and a half years. But during that time, the Lord will send two special witnesses to preach the gospel to the Jews in particular, urging them to repent and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, who is about to return in glory, conquering his enemies and setting up his kingdom. This is what we read starting in verse 1 of Revelation 11. John says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. And, and we said last week, maybe this is a measuring up, or at least just expressing ownership, measuring something that you own. But in either way, worshiping in the temple are these Jews, and God is focusing on them. But in verse 2, he says, don't measure the court of the Gentiles or the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, the Gentiles, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. That's three and a half years. And then immediately following verse 2, John is told, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. That's another way of saying three and a half years. Clothed in sackcloth like the Old Testament prophets. So there's an immediate connection between John's being told to measure the temple and the worshipers and the Lord sending the two witnesses. These are Jewish witnesses who are coming to Jewish people. 
They are identified in verse 4 as the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Eventually, we're going to look at Zechariah chapter 4, where we will see these olive trees. And they are told, we are told in Zechariah 4 that these are the ones who stand before the Lord. We'll get there eventually. But as Jewish witnesses to the Jewish people, they have these special powers that we only see in the ministries of Elijah and Moses. Remember those two figures, Elijah and Moses. Verse 5, if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes, very much like Elijah. If anyone would harm him, harm them, this is how he is, to be doomed, uh, is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, like Elijah. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood, like Moses, and to strike the, wor- uh, the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire, like Moses. And I'm not saying that this is actually uh, Moses and Elijah maybe like risen from the dead or anything like that, but it's very obvious to anybody who knows these two Old Testament figures that these men are at least coming in the power and the spirit of an Elijah and a Moses. And verse 7 says, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit, we will meet him in chapter 13. He hasn't been talked about yet, but he will rise up and will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. So this is in Jerusalem, where he would be preaching to Jews. They would be preaching to Jews. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze on their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. Three and a half days. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. There'll be a holiday made out of this day when they were killed because those two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Last week, when we introduced this passage, my emphasis was the fact that God still has a heart for his people. The apostle Paul says, that he would rather let himself be condemned so that he could save his own people, the Jews. And we see this ourselves when we look back at all of Scripture, the way that God has planned to rescue the world through his chosen ones, the Jews. The story of our salvation that the Bible tells is one of the defining moments in salvation history, when God chooses Abraham, remember this, out of Ur, a pagan. And he tells him, I will make of you a great nation and a kingdom will come through you. And through you and the people that will be part of this kingdom, the whole world will find salvation. And up to that point, God had judged the world because of, his, because of its rampant wickedness. But that judgment had not changed the heart of the people whom he saved from it. 
And we see this because Noah's descendants turned to idolatry at Babel. And it was evident that the world, after Noah and the flood, the world was heading exactly the same direction as it was heading before the flood. Every heart of the, of the people were only wicked all the time, Genesis 6 says. And, and the world was heading there again. Abraham was God's answer to Babel. And the people who came from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, were a people and a kingdom that was to ultimately spread the knowledge of the glory of the Lord throughout the earth and rule the world in righteousness with a righteous king. That was their mission. So God made a covenant with this nation, the Israelites, through Moses at Mount Sinai, giving them a law to follow, to keep them holy. And what else did he give them? He gave them a tabernacle, a place to build where God would come down and again be at the center of this kingdom. And they would surround the the tabernacle and God would be fellowshipping in this kingdom, in this people. And it was a bumpy ride for several centuries, if you know the history of Israel The nation of Israel struggled to obey that law and they struggled to worship God alone and not run off and worship other gods and and other temples and other uh, settings. But finally, in the early days of the rule of King Solomon, whose birth we read about this morning in in, uh, 2 Samuel, in the early days of the rule of King Solomon, the kingdom of Israel began to be a light to the world, bringing salvation to the whole earth. I don't know if you've studied Solomon's kingdom, but really I think that's the closest we get to the fulfillment of the plan in the Old Testament. A glorious temple was constructed in place of the tabernacle, and Solomon followed the Lord. And remember what happens? Other kings, and, and, and the queen of Sheba famously, They come from all over the world because they've heard of the glory of Solomon and this God that he worships. And they want to see the riches and the glory and the honor and the wisdom and the strength of this king that he has from his God. And this covenant started to be fulfilled. But it all came crashing down. And the kingdom lost its glory. And the reason... 2 Kings 11 explains is that Solomon loved many foreign women, his many wives, who worshipped other gods. And Solomon's heart was turned away from devotion to God, and he began to practice idolatry. So the kingdom was divided in two. And ultimately, both halves of the kingdom were destroyed because God had to judge At different times, his people, for their sin, he raised up Assyria to conquer and carry away the northern tribes of Israel. And, of course, he carried uh, the, the, the southern tribe of Judah away by Babylon into exile. Because the kingdom of God, the nation of Israel, could not follow him perfectly with their hearts. I mean, how can you be the light of the knowledge of God to the world when that light doesn't shine among you? How could they be this governing political instrument of authority that God was going to use to rule over the earth in righteousness if their hearts were not righteous. So did God abandon his plan? No, because it wasn't just a plan. He was like, okay, Abraham, I'm going to go with you for a while. If this doesn't work out, you know, I'll think of something else. No. God made a covenant with Abraham. He promised, I will make of you a great nation. You will be a blessing. Through you and your descendants, the earth will be blessed. If this covenant is not upheld, then God has lied. 
So no, the plan is not abandoned, but Israel needed something that it did not have yet. It needed a perfect king who could rule perfectly, righteously before God and also had the power to transform the hearts of the people through a perfect sacrifice, creating a people for his kingdom who wanted to be righteous. And God determined to send that king, that Messiah, who would call his people to repent and to make themselves ready once again to become that nation to rule the earth through a righteous kingdom. And through the work of that king, God would establish, the prophets promised, a new covenant with these people. So the prophets of God in the Old Testament began to proclaim to God's people, your king is coming! And and he's going to judge the earth with this cataclysmic judgment. And all of the nations will be judged, and in the end, he will set up his kingdom and rule in righteousness. The kingdom that God had promised through the covenant, it's really going to happen. It's really going to take place. And you will follow him. In fact, uh, Isaiah, uh, I think, uh, Jeremiah, I think it is, who says, nobody's going to have to say to one another, you know, you better know the Lord. You know, you better have your devotions. You better try to follow him. Uh, it says, at one point in the kingdom, they will all know the Lord, everybody, every one of them, from the least to the greatest of them. Remember those passages I read last week? I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. You will seek me and find me. I, take away, I will take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, these promises from the Old Testament. These are all promises that will be fulfilled ultimately through an earthly kingdom ruled by a perfect, righteous king with the power to transform the hearts of his subjects. But what has to happen before this king comes? Well, according to Old Testament prophecy, and I'm summarizing a lot of prophecy here, Before the kingdom is established, there has to be, first of all, an announcement of the king's coming. And then there has to be the welcoming of the king's reign by those who accept him. And then there has to be salvation for those who receive the king, but there's also a coming judgment for those who reject the king. And then there's finally the establishment of the kingdom. In the Old Testament prophets, that's how it's supposed to go down. So let me illustrate this for you, if I can, beginning with the last chapters of our Bible. If you have your Bibles here, if you want to follow, I will, of course, have the words on the screen here. But in Malachi chapter 3, we pick up the reading in the middle of Malachi's prophecy. Notice what he says. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. This is the announcement of the king. Somebody's going to come and make this announcement. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And you're like, that's right. When Jesus was here, he rode in on a donkey and he he came to the temple and he cleaned house. But that cannot be the complete fulfillment of this passage because judgment is associated with his coming to his throne. Verse 2, who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit, as that's in regal splendor. He will sit on his throne. 
as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, those are the priests of the temple, and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord in the days of, as in the days of old, as in former years. I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the soldier and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. There's judgment coming on those who reject the king. So if you're following this, Malachi says there will be an announcement of the king's coming and there will be salvation for those who receive the king and are cleansed by him and destruction on those who reject him. Let's keep reading in Malachi chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming like a burning oven, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming that shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Does that remind you a little bit of what we've been reading about in Revelation? But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I command him at Horeb for all Israel. Now watch closely. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That is how our Old Testament ends, by the way, at least our English version of it here. Uh, There are other versions of the Hebrew Old Testament that end with 2 Chronicles, actually, but this is the last of the prophets. The Old Testament ends with the promise that Elijah will come, and this Elijah will turn some of the hearts of the people to the Lord, or else everybody's going to die. So we turn the page, or maybe a couple of pages in your Bibles, and we find Matthew's gospel. And Matthew's emphasis is that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the anointed one, the king of his people. That's why Matthew's the only gospel, by the way, who has the Magi coming to worship Christ like a king. That's Matthew's emphasis. He's the coming Messiah. He's the, sling, he's, he's the king. This is my slide for my series on Matthew, by the way, when I'm done uh, with the series on Revelation. I'm just kidding about that. Uh, some of you who are in college will be like grown with children, you know, by then uh, if, we, if we keep going. But what do we find in this gospel of Matthew? Well, John the Baptist comes, warning his people to prepare their hearts for the king. He's announcing the king. And what is his message? We all know it by heart. Repent for the what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's going to come. The king is here. He's about to come. Receive him. He's going to restore the kingdom just like the Old Testament prophets promised again and again and again. And people came to be baptized in the Jordan River. And by their baptism, at that point, they were saying, I'm in. I want this king. I want to accept him. When he arrives, listen to how Matthew describes it. This is when the Pharisees come out to see what's going on. When John the Baptist saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, who, who didn't, many of them, believe him. But when they saw, he saw them coming, he said to them, you brood of vipers, 
who warned you to flee from what? The wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children into Abraham. You're not safe just because you're, you're, you're a descendant of Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, which is a sign of judgment. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You see what he's doing? He's warning of judgment. And by the way, it will really help you understand what what it's saying here if you cancel from your mind the fact that we're going to have the church come in eventually. Just, Just set that aside for a minute. All you know right now in the time period where he's talking is that they've been promised a kingdom and the one that's supposed to announce it is here and he says the king is about to come. That's all they know at this point. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Do you know what that means? It means there are those who will receive the king. And they'll be baptized by the Spirit. But those who reject the king will be baptized by fire. Fire is judgment. And how do we know? We keep reading. Verse 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The judgments and revelation fulfilled this prophecy. Judgments so severe, they can only be described as unquenchable fire. So what do we have here? We have the announcement of the coming king and the call to receive his reign or be judged. And can I say as a bit of of an excursus, and and we don't need excursus, that's Latin for rabbit trail. Uh, We don't need excursus, but this is an an important one. Um, The whole point of Jesus' teaching in the Gospels, the heart change that his people must have if they are going to enter the kingdom, that's what Jesus is trying to teach them. If you're going to accept the king, you've got to live righteously. They have to accept their king in righteousness. You take Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5-7, through for instance. What does he say? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. He says, blessed are the sorrowful, the meek, the righteous, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted, the ones who will be in my kingdom, that is how they will live. Those who truly know my word and follow in their heart, and they don't practice their religion for show. They don't pray and fast and give for show. They they really want to honor the Lord. And you read all through the Sermon on the Mount, and all these things are the way that Jesus is calling them to live if they're going to enter into the kingdom. And I'm not saying, by the way, that we can't read the Sermon on the Mount and say, well, we, we get uh, uh, evidence of how we live today. Of course we do as Christians. We, we can read all the Bible and apply it in one way or another to our lives. But uh, uh, we, um, we read the Sermon on the Mount, and it's not written to Christians who have already accepted the death and burial of Jesus Christ and his resurrection for their sin. I mean, for instance, there's no Holy Spirit mentioned in the, in the Sermon on the Mount at all. This is a sermon for the Jews who are being called to follow their king, to come into the kingdom. This is the gospel of the kingdom. It's a call to God's chosen people to receive their king, to bow to his lordship. And Jesus tells them in the Sermon on the Mount, many will say to me on that day, you know this text, right? That day when he comes to judge and reign, Revelation 19, Revelation 20, 
Many will say on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not? And they name all these great things they did for him. And Jesus will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. And the reason is they did not do the will of the father. And after this three chapter long sermon, we have this text that we all know so well, but put it in its context. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house. That's a metaphor for judgment. But it did not fall because it was founded on a rock. Who's the rock? The one who followed Christ. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the same storms of judgment came. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. In other words, accept your king and live a life of righteousness, and you can enter the kingdom. And the disciples of Jesus in Matthew's gospel, I mean, they're down for this. They're in. Lord, let's do it. What do we do? I'm going to be on the right. I want to be on the left. Are you going to bring it now? Let's go. And they're following Jesus, and they're just dying to have this kingdom come in. But there was a part of the plan that the disciples never quite figured out, even when it happened, until after it happened. And I want to pick up the reading in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, Later in Matthew's gospel, this is right after Jesus promises Peter the keys to the kingdom. We don't have time to go there right now. But let's just pick it up there from verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribe and be killed and be raised on the third day. See, there's a twist in the plot. This is a game changer. The disciples have already received the kingdom and the king. But what they didn't realize is that they could never be the righteous subjects of the kingdom unless they were changed first. Unless they were, as Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, unless they were born again by the lifting up of the son and his receiving him, they're receiving him. Jesus could have set up his kingdom. He could have conquered the Roman armies He could have restored Israel's territory, but the subjects of his kingdom would still be unrighteous, still lost in sin. It would not be a righteous kingdom. It would fail just like the kingdom in the Old Testament failed. They needed a way to be transformed, and that would be through Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross to first conquer the real enemy, death and sin and Satan. He could save them from the Romans, but he was going to have to save them from an enemy that was far greater, profoundly greater. But of course, the disciples did not understand this. So Peter rebukes the Lord in verse 22, and Jesus rebukes Peter in verse 23. You're familiar with that part. And after this, in verse 24, Jesus told the disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, which means that willingness to follow the Lord even unto death, even unto death by crucifixion. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. Remember the message for the conquerors in Revelation. Those who conquer are not those who necessarily escape persecution, but those who are faithful to Christ until the end, who take up their cross until the end. Those are the faithful ones, the conquerors in Revelation. Why is this? Verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. That's Revelation 19. That's vindication. 
Those who embrace Christ will be rewarded. Those who reject Christ will be judged. It's really going to happen. And Jesus wants his disciples to know this, that he's really going to come in glory. He's really going to set up his kingdom. And that's why he says in verse 28, right after this statement, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. He was going to give them a little foretaste of his power and glory. And we keep going into that chapter and we find out they saw it. About six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, which is ironic because he writes the Revelation later, right? And he leads them to a high mountain by themselves, and it says he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun. It's exactly how John describes it in Revelation 1. And his clothes became white as light, and behold, there appeared to them two men. Who are they? Moses and Elijah talking with the Lord. Moses, the Old Testament man of God who would turn water to blood and call all sorts of plagues on the earth. Elijah who called down fire from heaven and stopped the rain. That Moses and Elijah, they appear with the Lord as he reveals the overpowering, radiant glory that he will have as he bursts through the clouds, conquering his enemies and coming in his kingdom. And Peter loves this. He never wants to stop experiencing the euphoria at that moment. So he says in verse 4, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make these three tents here, and, and for you, one for you and one for Moses and, and one for Elijah. He's probably kicking himself later on that he just blurted that out. You know, probably felt like a fool later. Uh, you know, I said that. You know, you've ever been in a moment like that, and you can't believe what came out of your mouth. But he just couldn't help himself. And Jesus wants them to have this experience. Because the disciples knew the Old Testament prophets. They knew the kingdom was supposed to come. And Jesus knows that in just a little while, he's going to be crucified and they're going to scatter and they're going to be devastated and they're going to wonder what happened. Jesus has to die first and the disciples are not going to understand and he wants them to know this kingdom is going to happen. This is who I really am. I know I've come humbly. I know you don't see it, but this is who I am. And I could do this right now if it was the Father's will. Verse 5 says, He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Shut up, Peter. (laughs) You know, listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Rise and have no fear. And they lifted up their eyes. And the scene was gone. They saw no one but Jesus only. Verse 9, they're coming down from the mountain. Jesus commanded them, don't tell anybody about this vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. I mean, they still haven't gotten the raised from the dead part, but this is what Jesus says. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? What's he referring to? Malachi 4. Come before what? Before the Messiah judges the world and sets up his kingdom. That was what they just saw, the glory of it. Jesus answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. The word restore here means to put back the way it used to be. Elijah's ministry as a prophet was not to preach new law, but to call the people back to following what God had already told them. 
to turn the hearts of the children to the fathers, which means to, to respect the ancient word, and the heart of the fathers to the children. In other words, to love this generation and continue to teach the knowledge of the Lord. That's what Elijah would do when he comes. And that's the way it should have been. Israel should have flocked to their Messiah and, and grabbed onto him. Before the Lord brings in the kingdom, there has to be a call to accept the reign and turn from sin and embrace the Savior. And it is at this point that Jesus tells them something very curious in verse 12. He says, I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. This is John the Baptist he's talking about. John the Baptist was beheaded. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. The point is that Jesus was coming to judge the earth, destroy his enemies, and establish his kingdom. That's what they were all waiting for. And Elijah was supposed to come and call the nation to repent so that they would be ready to receive the Messiah and be welcomed uh, and, and welcome him as he establishes his kingdom. But they rejected John the Baptist who came in the spirit and the power of Elijah and they rejected their Messiah and they crucified him. He came to them four chapters later in Matthew, humbly riding on donkey and went into the temple. But it was not the powerful coming that we read about in Revelation, not this time. This time he was arrested and condemned. In fact, Pilate, you know, looked at the angry crowd And he said, shall I crucify your king? And they said, what? We have no king but Caesar. The utter rejection of their king. They'd rather have the Roman emperor than Jesus of Nazareth. The utter rejection of the Messiah, their king. And so Jesus lays down his life and Satan believes he has won the day. But Jesus, of course, after being dead for three days, breaks free from the grave, free from death, He gains the power to bestow on all who would receive him eternal life and a pure heart and a hunger for righteousness. Now, let's review at this point. After Jesus rises from the dead, what's supposed to happen now? Just think about what they're thinking, what the prophets are saying in the Old Testament. The announcement of the king's coming, check. The welcoming of the king's reign and salvation for those who receive it. Well, there were some who, did, who received it. Others rejected it. So we could check those. But the nation as a whole reject the king. So what is supposed to happen? Judgment is supposed to come upon the world. And the kingdom is supposed to be established. That's all they know. In fact, sometime after the resurrection, before Jesus ascends to the Father, remember what his disciples say in Acts chapter 1? Lord... At this time, will you restore your kingdom? I mean, is it now? I mean, we got through the whole death and resurrection and that's wonderful and we understand now. Is it now time for the kingdom? And Jesus doesn't say yes. He says, no, it's not for you to know the times that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But I can tell you this, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit is about to come upon you. I'm going to pour him out. And you are going to preach about my death and resurrection as a witness to the world. And what the Lord would start to unveil through his apostles, through Peter, and especially through Paul, is that the Lord was going to extend salvation to the entire world through the proclamation of his witnesses and establish something no one ever saw coming. And that was the mystery of the church. A mystery, I've often said, is truth that is unknowable until God chooses to disclose it. We can't know it until God decides it's time to reveal it. That's what a mystery is. 
In other words, Jesus' disciples and even the Old Testament prophets themselves didn't see this coming. That Jews and Gentiles would be brought together through the blood of Jesus Christ into one body to proclaim salvation to the whole world. And that's why Paul says, for instance, in Ephesians 3, he says, This was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of in Jesus Christ through the gospel. And he says in Ephesians 4, to me this grace was given to preach uh, to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to life for everyone what the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church this manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. And this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Now, let's apply this to Revelation. Give me five more minutes and I think we can wrap this up. In Revelation after Jesus' special message to the churches, guess what we don't hear about at all in Revelation? The church is gone from Revelation. All of the end-time prophecy you read about, you can't find the word church one time. It's not mentioned. I think personally it's because of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 where Paul says the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of the archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and we will always after that be with the Lord. I really believe the next thing on God's timetable is the rapture of the church. Why would God take the church out of the way? Because he's done with this time period. And he's going to turn his attention back to the Jews to establish his kingdom. And what we see in Revelation chapter 11, okay, so now this should make complete sense. We have the announcement of the king's coming through these two witnesses. And and they're very Elijah and Moses-like. And they're calling for the people in Revelation, uh, the, the Jews in particular, to welcome their king. To receive the king, at the end of that passage we read, notice many give glory to God. I think that Jews come to faith in Christ. Many of them do because of the witnesses in Revelation 11. But there's judgment for those who reject the king. And and here's what happens. They kill the witnesses just like they killed Jesus. They're dead for three and a half days, just like Jesus is, is in the tomb for three days. They rise again. God brings them back to life just like God raised his son. And what happens next will not have this mystery, this parenthesis. What's happening next is the next thing that's supposed to happen that the prophets talk about for centuries. The judgment comes upon the world and the kingdom is established. God has not changed his plan at all. He's revealed more of of it to us. And our gospel is fuller than the other gospel of the kingdom. But if we continue to read in the New Testament, and this is what I want to close with this morning, uh, Peter talks about this time period that will come when the earth will be destroyed and the kingdom will be established. 
uh, and, and the Lord will come like a thief. I don't think he's talking about the rapture there of the church. He's talking about the, the, the fact at the end that the Lord will come. But what he says is, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in the lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, wanting it to come with eagerness? Because you know what? We have sometimes a problem asking ourselves, what time is it? I don't know if you've ever had this happen to you. Probably you have. Where you had to be somewhere. There was a big event. You had to meet somebody. And you got distracted about something. And you're like, oh man, I completely lost track of time. And you were late or you're rushing or you're texting saying, I'm coming. I totally forgot about it. And, and, and you're rushing. Well, you know what? God is a perfect timetable. And it is, it is consistent in the scripture. What he says he has already done, he's done. What he says he's going to do, he is going to do in the same way. And there's this tension right now. We're waiting for the next thing on God's timetable. It's easy for us, however, to lull and to sleep, to forget that we need to be living for the Lord now and waiting for this to happen, that God's timetable fits together perfectly. It's very good for us as believers to ask ourselves, what time is it? When is Christ going to come? And he says, all these things are going to happen. And he says, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. What's the patience of the Lord? The fact that it hasn't happened yet, that he's not in a hurry, that he is waiting. And as I said last week, we have an opportunity because of the patience of the Lord to reach our community as God reaches out to his people. And so he leaves with this wonderful uh, benediction that we should be praying for ourselves, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Let's pick this up next time. I've cut a lot of this off this morning. I know that's surprising to you. Uh, But let's pray that God will continue to help us understand the scripture and to know what we need to do now as his people because of what he has told us. Father.